shouldn't call it insurance, but in case stuff. I give a company money in case stuff happens. If it doesn't, shouldn't I get it back? If I'd known you would keep the money, I would have gotten an accident. If you're taking my money, at least spend it on some poor sick people. Don't buy a Mercedes-Benz with it and park in front of Brooklyn Hospital where broke people walk by. Well, that um, heavily edited for family-friendly audiences um, are the uh, Chris Rock in the classic uh, 2001 movie Down to Earth, where at one point, one of the characters Chris Rock plays in the movies in the movie is talking about insurance. Now, there's some uh, maybe economics that isn't working quite right in how he's describing insurance. And we're going to learn a little bit about that today and about the intersection of insurance and civil rights law. Stay with us. I promise it's going to be interesting. And we have a special guest here, his first time on Short Circuit, one of my colleagues who knows all about the intersection of insurance and civil rights law. Um, maybe not so much about parking in Mercedes-Benz in front of Brooklyn Hospital, but we can get into that. Um, I am Anthony Sanders, your host on Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. We're recording this on Wednesday, December 21st, 2022. Now, uh, this time of year, every year at IJ, is when we accept applications for our summer fellowships, our Dave Kennedy Summer Fellows. If you are a 1L or a 2L in law school, you can apply to work here in the summer and learn all kinds of things about litigating for liberty. Uh, we have rolling applications, although we accept them until January 27th. So if you're interested, I would encourage you to apply as soon as you can. We are going to put a link up in the show notes for how to apply, but you can also find it on our webpage at ij.org. So encourage you to do that. I was uh, a clerk when I was at IJ, or when I was in law school, and it eventually led to where I am today. So um, I encourage you to apply if you're, you're interested in what we do. Also, stick around to the end. Uh, you may have seen separately on our feed, but we have uh, made a discovery here at Short Circuit, and that's that the 12 days of Christmas correspond to the 12 circuits that we cover. We don't cover the federal circuit uh, because the, the cases never really uh, correspond to uh, what we talk about, but we do cover all numbered 11 circuits and the DC circuit. And so that congruence of 12 and 12 has led us to write a parody song on the 12 days of Christmas that I hope you enjoy. And that will be at the end of our podcast. But before that, much more um, insurable and interesting things. We have with us today, Dan Nepper. So Dan is our um, general counsel here at IJ. He also wears a few other hats and titles. Um, he knows anything about everything about the business of law and a few other business questions as well. So we have, he and I have been talking for a while about coming on short circuit with something within his expertise. And then along comes um, this insurance case from the Sixth Circuit uh, that also has to do with civil rights law. And then I will be talking about another case from the 11th Circuit in a little bit. So Dan, welcome to Short Circuit. Hey, thanks for having me, Anthony. <clears throat> I want to start off and say, I believe that you were the summer clerk 
a summer clerk at IJ the year before I was a summer clerk at IJ. That's right. I was 2003. And I was 2004. Yes. Yeah. Down there on Pennsylvania Avenue. A, a much a different place than today, a much smaller place, but it was still uh, it's still quite a good time litigating for liberty. So, Dan, what do you have for liberty in the hopper for us today? Well, Anthony, there's a case out of the, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, got Safety Specialty Insurance Company versus Genesee County Board of Commissioners, and then a couple of other defendants, Th- Thomas A. Fox and, and Tammy Pucklack. I'm not sure I've got that name pronounced correctly, but it's it's, it's, it, it's what it looks like on paper. We'll let it and go. When, and when, and when, I, when I first read it, I was like, this, this isn't that interesting. This is this pretty straightforward. Like, no, there's no coverage here. And, blah, blah. and, and then I started to kind of peel back the layers on this. And this is this was a pretty fascinating case, the way that it came together. And so while this case was decided in November, just a couple of weeks ago, and I think it was filed in, in early 2000, if it's all right, I want to start a little bit earlier than that. And because a lot of this relates back to a, a case that was brought by our good friends at, at PLF called Raffaele v. Oakland, right? And so the, at root, what's happening in our, our safety specialty insurance case is the counties, the county involved, Genesee, was, was sued as part of a class action lawsuit that sought to have uh, monies kept by the county related to tax sales on foreclosed homes returned in some fashion damages sent back to those homeowners and the county sought and uh, sought to have the 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 in coverage for the lawsuit and, and cost of the defense covered by their insurance company the insurance company said no this became an issue when in the PLF case Raffaelli the, the 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 client there was 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 somebody who was a victim of 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 this regime he owed $8 in 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 back back taxes on his property taxes the and, and the county of Oakland foreclosed on the home sold the home for $25,000 $24,500 and then kept the 24,492 difference and seem well. That seems unfair. That seems wrong. Just but, a but little. This, just a little. But 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 this this type of this 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 scheme this regime was blessed by Michigan statute and and the, it's kind of how all the counties there there operated. And so and I should you know, I should add uh, just to break in, Dan. Uh, Long time short circuit listeners may remember that we actually talked about this case and had the lead attorney for the case, uh, Christina Martin. On uh, on July thirtieth, twenty twenty, it's short circuit one forty two. So we'll put a link up in the show notes to it. But uh, that um, that case, when it came out, we uh, we talked a bit about the the holding and this eight dollars versus thousands of dollars discrepancy. And that's it was great timing on your part, Anthony, because that's right when this case was decided. Um, and and the, the, the we Michigan did it, I should say, after the opinion came out. The, the Michigan Supreme Court had, had a different, couple different options, but they, they ruled that that this type of, of you know, 
keeping the 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 equity keeping keeping the the excess and the amount of of the property taxes was was a taking and and you know the, wasn't you, the, one of the concurrences that well maybe maybe this should be looked at as kind of seizing the the homeowner's equity and maybe not a constitutional issue but in any case the 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 the, the setup of holding that that extra in this case twenty four thousand dollars was 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 held to be unconstitutional. Now, I want to focus on a couple of key dates because I think it really helps put this Sixth Circuit decision kind of into the right context. Until until 2020, this was just practice. Like until July 20, this is just practice in Michigan. It's it's what it's what it's what they did. So for clothes on homes because of tax that you keep that you keep the difference. In 2018, though, is when the Michigan Supreme Court granted the application to, to review this practice, right? That's when they said, all right, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to take this. We're going to decide whether or not this is, this is a constitutional practice. And then between then and in 2020 are when, are when the class action lawsuits get filed, right? And, and what you saw was, it was, uh, was several different class actions that said with, with their, their, the lead plaintiffs that said, Hey, counties that foreclosed on our houses and kept the surplus Give us that money back, and and quite you know, just to, to drive this point home. In the underlying district court case filed as part of their counterclaim, the the county, it, it, the Genesee County, provided its the letters that they sent to the insurance company, putting them on notice that there was time to defend the suit. And one of them even said, "I thought this was great, um, you know." A number of other counties have been sued in identical lawsuits. This one attorney is representing several of them. We'd like to, to use him here. Um, so, I mean, this the machine had started to roll well before <laughs> the decision the decision had come down. And then in August of 2020, a second letter went from Genesee County to the insurance companies that said, "So about that Raffaelli decision, here it is." <laughs> And just a, just a few months later, our, our insurance company responds and says, "We're gonna um, we're gonna reserve reserve our rights here because we we're, we're not covering this, right?" And so <laughs> said, we're we're gonna deny, we're gonna deny coverage, and it, it listed it's listed its 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 various reasons why. Now there were two policies in place that the Genesee County sought to get coverage under. One was commercial general liability and the other was a public officials and employment practices. You know, I thought it'd be helpful to, to talk a little bit about what the district court did to, to then put in a, to help kind of frame how the Sixth Circuit eventually disposed of this. That, um, that'd be great, Dan. And maybe for, for some listeners who aren't super familiar with in, insur- commercial insurance practice and put, putting your insurer on notice, Give a little bit of background about like how that generally goes. If you're a, if you're like a company or a trustee or a or a county or something like that. Wow, Anthony, your your question is timely and topical. Um, <laughs> gen- gen- insurance policies will have an obligation to provide notice of to 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 to, to, to the insurer in the event that you think a claim is, is 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 likely to happen or will happen. You want you want them to cover something, and the notice provision is, is critical because the insurance company gets to decide how it wants to involve itself, how it wants to to, to be there, inconsistent in with the, the overall terms of the policy. 
The reason it's timely and topical, Anthony, is because people who follow the news right now may have noticed that there's a, a pair of, of, of pretty high profile affirmative action cases in front of the, the Supreme Court involving North Carolina and Harvard. And our, the, the Harvard, Harvard forgot to provide notice to its insurance company. And so it's in a, a dispute with its insurance company for legal fees that are over $20 million. And, and at least according to the press or the news reports around it, Harvard is arguing you had to know about it because it was in the news. Right. And I'm not sure Harvard is going to carry the day on that one. And so the failure for them to provide notice could end up being could end up costing the university like tens of millions of dollars. Right. So stay, so, so stay tuned. When I was a, a litigator for for trust funds, uh, employee benefit plans, the moment there was any whisper of some kind of lawsuit where your trustees might be sued, you got that letter off to to the insurance company. You didn't That's right. you, you didn't wait for the lawsuit. You didn't wait even at, let alone after that. You got that notice out there. That uh, absolutely, absolutely, and it's it's one of those things where you know it has to. Have, there's good reasons why it has to happen. It's also. You know, my my tax law professor covered insurance in, in, in law school, and he often reminded us that insurance companies don't make money by paying claims. Right. And, <laughs> that's what Chris Rock says. That, that's right. That's right. And so that you don't want to you want you, you want to follow your insurance policy to letter and you don't want to provide you. Know, you have to provide notice. All of a sudden that you're in a, you're in a fight for coverage that that could have easily been avoided if you had provided notice as you were supposed to under the policy. Right. So the fight between the county and the insurance company wasn't about who was insured. That was obvious. Right. It was it was the, the, the county had the insurance policies that they were the insured. It was whether there was any there two 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 real fronts on this one. The, there was whether there was any kind of wrongful act under which it should be insured. And then it was whether there were any exclusions that applied. Now, commercial general liability, that's – I've always understood it to be slip and fall insurance, right? It's, it's, it's the type of thing where there's you know, some type of physical access or something along those lines. And honestly, neither the district court nor the court of appeals is going to end up spending a whole lot of time on, on the commercial general liability. It just doesn't – it just doesn't, doesn't have a, a real say in, say in how this comes out. The public officials and employment practices policy, though, it covers it, it, it covered underlying lawsuits, and so you had a you know the, a, a real a much stronger argument in my view from the county that coverage was appropriate here. Um, however, there were a couple of exclusions that ended up being very relevant, and you got you know both sides here are throwing. 5, 10, 15 arguments why insurance should apply or not apply. But but really, there were two that, that, that jumped out. One is there was an exclusion for a violation of property rights. And, and it, explicitly, it explicitly called out you know, things involving eminent domain, which were front and center in the underlying Michigan Supreme Court decision. And then a second exclusion that related to tax collection. Right. So things that relate to counties, the counties, the way they, they collect taxes or handle their taxes were excluded from the policy's coverage. Right. Um, they also the the insurance companies, they they started. So they end up seeking declaratory judgment against both the county and against the lead plaintiffs, the named plaintiffs in the underlying class action lawsuits. 
And at first when I read this, I, I, I wasn't, I thought maybe they had to do this because they wanted to make sure they didn't get dismissed for not failing to name parties or those things. But, but the real reason the insurance companies did this was because they were hoping to stop the argument here. Right. If, if they if they got a declaratory judgment against the the name, the name plaintiffs, then they wouldn't necessarily be fighting this fight over and over again. They would be able to say, you know what? You know, here's we, this has been decided. It's over. It's done. And now we can walk away knowing we don't have to we don't have to have this fight over and over again. Um, so now just to recap where we are, we're at the end of 2020. These the counties in Michigan six months prior had been doing something they'd been doing for a long time. And six months later, Genesee County now knows that they were performing unconstitutional takings. They were being sued under class actions and the insurance companies were fighting their coverage. Like this, it, I can't imagine that that, that was, that was a fun holiday party at Genesee County that year. <laughs> the, the insurance company seeks declaratory judgment. The named plaintiff's response was kind of hilarious. It was a page and a half that could fairly be summarized as what? Right, like we don't, why, why are we here? Right, and and the and and the county comes back and says, no, 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 no. First of all, there's two things going on here. No exclusion applies, and even if there is an exclusion that might apply, your obligation to defend us is far broader, right? Than, than your obligation is to pay out any claims. Step up and do what you're supposed to do. You, you can kind of understand where the counties are coming from. They bought an insurance policy. That in their minds, and I, I believe this to be the case, they thought this is what it's there for, right? You know, we followed all the we provide notice, we did this. Now step up and do what you're supposed to do. And in February of 2022, the district court ended up ruling. And they granted the insurance company's motion versus the counties. We'll talk about what that means. They denied the insurance company those versus our are named our our, our our class representatives. Apparently, the argument of what was very persuasive, <laughs> and and they denied the county's claims that 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 coverage was appropriate. Um, there were two things that happened with the named plaintiffs that I thought that I thought were 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 made were were convincing, and and the Sixth Circuit ended up agreeing with it. The first is that the those those plaintiffs the named plaintiffs weren't residents of this county. Like there was there was a sufficient amount of distance between those plaintiffs in the policy that the court had a tough time wrapping wrapping them into this dispute. And he said, and then they looked at examples where where you know case had come up. They said it's a tough question. You've got to look at it. You know, part of the problem here is that this case doesn't come up in the ordinary in the ordinary insurance kind of kind of setup where you know. They're seek, the county is seeking coverage because of a bad act that you know perhaps the 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 the, the named plaintiff had had performed or whatever. This is the county did it all. Like these guys just lost their houses, right? And and they lost their houses and they lost the surplus to the county's tax collection scheme. And so the the the, the court had a really tough time trying to find the the adequate in its view like kind of adequate we'll call nexus, even though that's not the, the term of art between the named plaintiffs and the case such that they agreed with the the, the class the named class uh, plaintiffs that that they didn't belong in the lawsuit. Um, as for as mentioned above, they spent about a hot minute on saying commercial general liability doesn't apply. And then when it gets to the, 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 the other policy, it says, you know, yeah, this is supposed to cover lawsuits. This, it seems like there might be some application here, 
But boy, th- this exclusion around tax collection in eminent domain, it it really seems to fall on on all fours. And the county tried as it as it could to say, no, 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 no. Tax collection is the process of ta- of collecting taxes. Like what we're talking about here occurs down the chain, right? It, it occurs down the line, and it's not really related to tax to tax collection at all. To which our court said, "quote unquote," that's uncompelling, right? and and eventually decided with the insurance company. So everybody appeals to the Sixth Circuit at that point. And I, and again, when I first read this, I was surprised that the insurance companies were were really doubling down trying to pull in these these named plaintiffs. I understood it to really be about efficiency and hoping to stop the fight, stop future fights down the line. It was pretty clear why the county county appealed. They got they get, they got their lunch handed to them, and the Sixth Circuit, in a relatively brief opinion, affirmed it. They said we were, we reviewed it de novo. Yeah, the, those those named plaintiffs don't don't even live in the counties that are being sued. There's there's no real connection to, to in a lawsuit where we're, we're letting them go insurance companies you're gonna have to fight this one another time however insurance companies you're going to win right and they didn't even bother looking at the eminent domain exclusion they focused only on they say all it takes is one exclusion and the one exclusion that's relevant here is is the exclusion on tax collection and try as the counties might to provide all kinds of different reasons why, you know, look, there's many different claims. They all, they, they, they should at least defend us. The Sixth Circuit said every single thing in this lawsuit turns on the fact that you were seizing people's homes, you were selling them, and you were keeping the proceeds. That that's that's the only act in question here. That one exclusion is sufficient to cover everything here, and the, the insurance companies have no obligation to defend or defend or defend you or or, or to pay or to cover these claims. Um, stepping back for just a minute, I get I really you know enjoyed watching kind of the interplay between the the, the public interest litigation that that needed to happen to kind of uncover what in my mind like runs counter to, you know, it is it is just textbook that if if you, you know, someone happens to foreclose at one of your debts and there's excess, there's more money than is needed to pay that debt, that that money goes back to goes back to you, right? That, that's, just, that's just where it is. And 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 to see that the public interest you know lawsuit that that forced Michigan, forced you brought it to the Michigan Supreme Court to say, yeah, no, that's that should apply here too. It's a taking, it's equity, however you want to fashion it. Like counties shouldn't get to hang on to $24,492 extra for an $8 tax bill. And and as that process was unfolding, and, and you can understand when, when Michigan said, yeah, we're gonna work at the Supreme Court said, yeah, we're gonna hear this case. Like, you know, I'm tickled that class class action counsel said, let's go fix this for all the people who have been wronged. And maybe make a little money ourselves, right? <laughs> um, but 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 uh, watching kind of that dynamic unfold over time through the lens of this insurance case, mm-hmm. I, I thought was was pretty fascinating and 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 and, and not necessarily obvious from from the <laughs> six or eight or ten pages or whatever in the decision. Yeah, and we've seen. So we had uh, in addition to that that short circuit I mentioned earlier about the under that underlying Michigan Supreme Court case. There's been litigation elsewhere in the Sixth Circuit, including in Ohio, because Ohio, your home state, Dan, um, Ohio municipalities and counties are guilty of this as well. And we did uh, we did one case that was uh, uh, 
that was at the a preliminary stage, but the Sixth Circuit sent it back down to, to continue on a, on a similar question. And there's been other cases about the uh, about Michigan uh, counties doing this. So it's it's definitely uh, a big and ongoing issue. But there is a huge amount of fuel added to, uh, you know, if not right, all the fuel you need um, in Michigan, at least on this uh, on this question from the Michigan Supreme Court. And so now we're watching uh, the fallout from that. And it it's interesting that it's not just takings uh, litigation, but it's insurance litigation. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm sure there's other aspects of this controversy that are are radiating outwards. Yeah, I I think that's I think that's right, and you know it it, it strikes like I I wonder what the room was like in when this policy got renewed in whatever it was two thousand eighteen, you know, and and you kind of walk through the policy and you look at the exclusions and you get to like the tax collection or the eminent domain, you know, exclusions that are in there, and people are barely paying attention and their eyes are glazing over because it's an insurance <laughs> policy, and and then all of a sudden they become hugely relevant provisions that that are going to determine you know determine whether or not you know the county's on the hook for the fees, or the insurance company's on the hook for the fees, those types of things. It's a it, it it was a you know to 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 watch how those provisions change and import over time. So one question on that is uh, the little I know, a little bit more than the, just these cases we're talking about, is that exclusions for property, uh, basically property rights litigation and eminent domain especially, I think is kind of standard for an insurance policy for a municipality or, or a county. Why is that? Is it just because it's such a it can be such a big amount of money or is it something they're not worried about as much when it comes to land? Like why would you exclude that? And of course you don't exclude like the, the lawsuit against the cop for police brutality, uh, the underlying cases, which we talk about here all the time where those are, are generally covered by these policies. So it, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I don't, I don't have an answer to this specific, specific, like why, you know, I do, I did have chatted with uh, insurance, you know, brokers and folks in the business who have explained the process as such. At one point in time, the insurance policy said, we're going to cover these losses. And then over time, lawsuits happen, things happen and insurance companies start, start to whittle it away. Right. And so we're, we're going to cover these losses except for environmental. We're going to cover these losses except for eminent domain. We're going to cover these losses except for whatever. And, and you can go and buy. Sometimes you can go buy extra. They're more expensive. You can go and buy that coverage if you need it or not. But but they those exclusions kind of evolve based off of circumstances over time and experience by the insurance company. But I don't know if that's what happened specifically yeah. with this exclusion or not. It's it's I mean, I'm just speculating here. It, the kind of claim you get in property rights is something where uh, the city has time to think about and know what it's doing, perhaps uh, a distinction we've talked about here before, whereas, you know, that w- what your police officers can do is a little harder to control sometimes. And so that's something you're you're more likely to get insurance for, I guess. Well, speaking of what police officers do. We're going to now turn uh, to another insurance case. Uh, This is a very different kind of insurance case, but it does involve, uh, as I said, the police and also uh, exclusions. So 
in the 11th Circuit, we have the case North American Company for Life and Health Insurance versus Caldwell. Uh, it's actually the underlying facts are very sad. Uh, and so we'll we'll just talk about those briefly here. So there was a fellow, uh, Mr. Caldwell, who um, bought a couple insurance policy, or he and his uh, his family bought a couple insurance policy. Uh, so one he bought on November, the, the policy started on November 9th, 2018. And then there was another policy bought in the summer of 2020. Um, now, they both had a million-dollar death benefit if you die, which is what a, a life insurance policy is. So that would go to, um, to the beneficiaries, his, his family. Um, but then it has an exclusion, which is pretty common in life insurance policies, for suicide. So it says suicide. If the insured commits suicide while sane or unsane within two years from the policy date, our liability is limited to an amount equal to the total premiums paid. So you just get what you paid in. You don't get the million bucks. Now, on October 8th, 2020, so that's a little less than two years for the first policy and, and way less than two years for the second policy, um, Justin was was having problems. So he and his wife were going through, um, that, that's Mr. Um, Miss, Mr. Caldwell, the uh, the. The, the man we're talking about here, uh, he was having problems. He called his parents in the middle of the night to say goodbye. His wife wanted a divorce. You know, who knows what else was going on in his life? Uh, the court doesn't get into too much detail. But then he told his wife that he was, quote, waiting for the police to come and kill him. And then uh, she called the police, said that he was suicidal, that he's waiting to die by law enforcement, and uh, what she said was wanted to commit suicide by cop. Police then arrive. Um, they try negotiating with him. To, I mean, to their credit, they tried to talk him down. Uh, at one point, uh, there's, there's some conflict, and they fire some non-lethal rubber, rubber bullets. It says then he reached a truck outside his truck and he grabbed his rifle spun around and lifted it to shoot at the officers. So they shot and lo and behold, they killed him. And so he's dead and the beneficiaries, his wife and someone else uh, claim, claim on the life insurance policy for this million dollar for each policy. And the, uh, the, uh, com the insurance company, unsurprisingly, says that this is a suicide and so we're not going to pay. So the the court short discussion in this case, uh, which it gets pretty interesting in terms of um, interpretation of the meaning of language, is whether this is a suicide. And so they turn to some case law about, you know, what suicide can mean, what the taking of a life can mean. And there's there's not a lot of cases. There's nothing on point about suicide by cop, as it's called. But there is some case law about how it, it's the intent of yourself to take your own life. It doesn't have to be you yourself are the, is the one who physically takes your own life, which Kind of makes sense. Uh, we've all heard of like assisted suicide, right? That's when someone helps you take your own life. Uh, they go to the dictionary. They, they quote quite a lot of dictionaries, including including Brian Garner's uh, legal dictionary, which some of our listeners may be uh, familiar with. 
and that uh, it is suicide is a broad term that includes uh, uh, someone else being involved. And they even cite Black's Law Dictionary that says slang, suicide by cop, a form of suicide in which the suicided person, suicidal person intentionally engages in life-threatening behavior to induce a police officer to shoot the person. There's some other uh, uh, citations after that, and in terms of where suicide by cop used in, um, you know, more generally uh, in our language community, you might say, but uh, linguistic community. But at the end of the day, it, it it's fairly convincing um, that this does include um, that this exclusion would include what what happened to the policyholder, and therefore there is no insurance for his heirs. Um, it's very sad underlying facts, but not very surprising analysis of what this exclusion means. Now, one interesting thing is that the Dan and I were talking about before we started recording is that there's a two, there's only a two, first two years, this exclusion. So if he had you know waited a couple more months to do this, uh, at least on the one policy, it would have been paid. Uh, it's just, it was in the, the, the first two years. No, no, the the dates kind of jump out of you, right? Because you, you, if you you know the two year exclusion is, is sitting there, and you see is like one of I think it was November, and then you know twenty three months later, right? The, the the precipitating event happens, and you think you know yeah, a, a month later, this this the, the, the there's probably only one 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 insurance policy at question, right? You know, that's the, the this policy drops. I believe it's generally a function of state law, but but in any case that's I, my understanding is that's how a lot of life insurance policies are written. I think in the past when when you you know you read a Victorian novel about uh an insurance policy, uh right, that's some some kind of classic story, is that uh, you know, I don't remember any I, I remember this this kind of idea that you can't write. There's all there's all kinds of um, penalties from suicide under the common law, like you can't inherit. You know, if you're if 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 you're uh, you would have inherited the person you would have inherited from uh, commit suicide, and there's all kinds of you know other uh, penalties on, under traditionally under the law. But um, in the modern times, there there are usually this this uh, limit, uh, but there is a two year limit. It also makes you think. I mean, that this this guy obviously had some serious problems, and that. Uh, probably wasn't thinking first and foremost about the insurance policy in what he did, right? I think that might have just been accidentally what what the facts were. Because if he really did just want to look after his heirs with that million bucks, he could have waited a, a couple months. I think, unsurprisingly, there, there was some other, uh, other stuff going on um, in his life. What One thing, so this is going to sound kind of weird and different from the very morbid facts we just talked about. But one thing that I thought was interesting about this case, because there's not a lot of case law on what this type of situation means, they really got into some linguistic interpretation as to what the, you know, what suicide is. And the same methods that you saw here in looking at, okay, what's, how is it discussed in dictionaries? How is it discussed in, you know, non-legal sources? Um, is the kind of methods and tools we see used um, when people are doing originalist research, right? What does the First Amendment mean in 1791? Well, we'll look at some dictionaries from the time. 
We'll look at uh, how that was talked about on the floor of Congress. We'll see. We'll look at how it was uh, discussed in different kinds of uh, sources, whether it's books or or newspapers. I mean, they didn't do this, but there's a whole corpus linguistics um, uh, field now where they look at how many times a certain word was mentioned within a decade in newspapers and in what context. Um, and so it shows you that uh, you know something that we think is commonplace in interpreting a policy, uh, well, a legal document, in this case, an insurance policy written today, when you're, it's it's really not that mysterious when you apply it to the Constitution. Uh, and it was 200 years ago. It just seems kind of like, wow, that's you know, either that's really weird, and that's what these you know weird conservative scholars do, libertarian scholars do, or um, you know, oh yes, that's that's high and mighty stuff that we get up to when you know an originalist uh, on his high horse might say about the Constitution. Whereas, no, it's just it's just research, linguistic. It, it's just legal interpretation. It just happens to be at a point in the past that, of course, is going to be harder to do because it's it's more reviews, uh, it's more removed from our linguistic community today. Yeah, the, the, the last paragraph of the opinion, to kind of to your point, is, is the one that that kind of crystallized this for me, which where the, where the court says, look, you know, there are probably a lot of different varieties of suicide by cop, right? And we're not deciding all of them. But what we have here is, like, as I understood the decision, is say we've got kind of a joint stipulation by the parties as to what went down. Right. And, and, and like the effects are also this gentleman obviously struggling with with some stuff had broadcast that he was going to commit suicide by cop. And it, I think that that made the courts kind of grappling with the, the question at hand of whether this is suicide to be a, a little bit a little bit easier because this was a, if there is such a thing as suicide by cop. That one word the parties agree what happened is it's is, this is what case. Happened. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he 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 tells his wife he wants to get the cops there so he will die. Uh, he he evidences that after they get there, uh, it seems to be that there's no argument by the beneficiaries, and they'd have every reason to make that argument that no, he was just you know a little bit off that day. He didn't really want to die. Um, but there are all kinds of situations where someone is killed by a cop and maybe they did something reckless or maybe they, you know, it's unclear if they did something reckless that absolutely might not be suicide by cop. Um, so I thought that was, uh, an important qualification that, uh, that judge, uh, uh, William Pryor, uh, put there in the, in the last paragraph. So, well, Dan, uh, this has been a, a wonderful tour of the insurance world. Anything else you want our listeners to leave with about insurance, whether they're you know buying their own uh, life insurance policy, their own company's policy, uh, they work down at City Hall, they're thinking through their, their E&O, you know, dotting the I's, uh, crossing the T's. What, what should they come away with? I would, I'm tempted to say something a little cheeky like, Pay attention to the, what the Supreme Court does in case what you've been doing is deemed unconstitutional, right? Like, but, but ultimately, I, I, well, I thought what happened in, in at least in the first case was you know, pretty standard. Like, I don't think the counties did anything wrong, 
right? They, they followed the letter of the policy. They thought they had this covered. Except and, and, they violated the Constitution. Well, the, sorry, with respect to their insurance policy. <laughs> right? no, no, that's it. Right. <laughs> yes, no, they should not have violated the Constitution. <laughs> Yeah. So you can you can do what you're saying is you can do everything right under your insurance policy, but there still might be a problem. I think that's right. Well, so you know, one of the things that 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 came to front of mind as I was reading the decision and, and watching kind of the circumstances change around the counties as compared to the the world that existed when they signed that policy and the world that existed when the Michigan Supreme Court said what you're doing is unconstitutional. It called into mind a little bit the import of force majeure clauses after March of 2020, right? Oh, yeah. Like force majeure clauses had largely been, you know, you again, read it, make sure that it's got, you know, reasonable or whatever in there. And you just kind of moved on. And all of a sudden, like the circumstances around had changed just really dramatically, whether it's because shutdown orders or pandemic, all those things. And the way that those, those words operated would turn out to be very, very different. And so I think like as, you know, just like with any other contract, when you look at your insurance policy, you look at a contract, you know, you got, you, you, you're trying to make sure you're putting it into the right context and think about the way that it might operate so you can't see the future but but it's important to to think about how how those clauses and how those exclusions may come to play yeah we've talked about a couple of those cases here on short circuit over the last couple years and and if from what i've seen and also in our we've discussed quite a few of them in our short circuit newsletter it's almost 100 percent that they are have not been that damages from the pandemic have not been covered by the by those policies is that right that that's it's it, it, the weight of it is is going in that direction for sure. There, I think there are a handful of of ones that have survived the the, the motion to dismiss because of how a particular clause is worded or something along those lines. But but I, I, the, the what I'm seeing is that's what I'm seeing as well. Well, Dan, it's been great. Thanks for coming on Short Circuit. And you know, if if insurance comes our way, or perhaps even a different subject uh, in, in in the future, I think you used to do some FERC. Lawsuit. We haven't done a lot of FERC here, but 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 that might be a reason to get you back on. I, I, I'm I'm happy to if if, if there's if you've got something that's super boring, Anthony. You got the underlying topic or something that's that it's it's that's not that exciting. You think of me. That's right. That's it. We, we will also if if uh, Ohio State uh, you know uh, has something interesting happen to them, we we might get you on for that too. <laughs> That'll work. All right. Well, uh, thank you all for listening. So now. To close out, we're going to turn to the 12 days of short circuit Christmas. So each day corresponds to a different circuit. The uh, 12th day is for the DC circuit. And uh, singing the refrain is IJ's Trace Mitchell. And the rest, in order of their appearance, are Sam Gedge, Erica Smith-Ewing, Christy Bear, Wesley Hoddit, Tori Clark, Andrew Ward, Jeff Rose, Anya Bidwell, John Wrench, Diana Simpson, Short Circuit's own John Ross, and making a return appearance, Sheldon Gilbert. Merry Christmas, everyone, and a Happy New Year. On the first day of Short Circuit Christmas, my federal reporter gave to me a thesaurus under Judge Celia's pine tree. On the second day of Short Circuit Christmas, my federal reporter gave to me 
to Calabresi tort rules. And a thesaurus under Judge Celia's pine tree. On the third day of Short Circuit Christmas, my federal reporter gave to me three Jersey convictions to Calabresi tort rules. And a thesaurus under Judge Celia's pine tree. On the fourth day of Short Circuit Christmas, my federal reporter gave to me four ex-prosecutors, three Jersey convictions, two Calabresi tort rules, and a thesaurus under Judge Celia's pine tree. On the fifth day of Short Circuit Christmas, my federal reporter gave to me five judge hoes, four ex-prosecutors, Jersey convictions, two Calabresi tort rules, and a thesaurus under Judge Celia's pine tree. On the sixth day of Short Circuit Christmas, my federal reporter gave to me six Sutton stanzas, five judge hoes, four ex-prosecutors, three Jersey convictions, two Calabresi tort rules. And a thesaurus under Judge Celia's pine tree. On the seventh day of Short Circuit Christmas, my federal reporter gave to me seven Chicago professors, six Sutton stanzas, five judge hoes, four ex-prosecutors, three Jersey convictions, two Calabresi tort rules, and a thesaurus under Judge Celia's pine tree. On the eighth day of Short Circuit Christmas, my federal reporter gave to me Eight qualified immunities Seven Chicago professors Six Sutton stanzas Five judge hoes Four ex-prosecutors Three Jersey convictions Two Calabresi tort rules And a thesaurus under Judge Celia's pine tree on the ninth day of Short Circuit Christmas, my federal reporter gave to me Nine on bonk reversals Eight qualified immunities Seven Chicago professors Six Sutton stanzas Five judge hoes Four ex-prosecutors Three Jersey convictions Two Calabresi tort rules And a thesaurus under Judge Celia's pine tree on the tenth day of Short Circuit Christmas, my federal reporter gave to me Ten library court rooms Nine on bonk reversals Eight qualified immunities Seven Chicago professors Six Sutton stanzas Five judge hoes Four ex-prosecutors Three Jersey convictions Two Calabresi tort rules and a thesaurus under Judge Celia's pine tree. On the eleventh day of Short Circuit Christmas, my federal reporter gave to me Eleven judges named prior. Ten library court rooms. Nine on bonk reversals. Eight qualified immunities. Seven Chicago professors. Six Sutton stanzas. Five judge hoes. Four ex-prosecutors. Jersey convictions, two Calabresi tort rules, and a thesaurus under Judge Celia's pine tree. On the twelfth day of Short Circuit Christmas, my federal reporter gave to me.
12 vacators granted. 11 judges named prior. 10 library court rooms. 9 on bonk reversals. 8 qualified immunities. 7 Chicago professors. 6 Sutton stanzas. 5 judge hoes. 4 ex prosecutors. 3 jersey convictions. 2 calabresi tort rules. And a thesaurus under Judge Celia's pine tree.